With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast with me, Das Christodoulou. This week's show is a real treat. Last month, we were joined by Michio Kaku, who is both a leading theoretical physicist and one of the world's most eloquent and beloved science communicators. He talked to Robin Ince about the history of the most famous quest in science, the search for a theory of everything. It's the subject of his new book, The God Equation. Thank you very much for joining us. Before we get into the contents of the book, it seems important to maybe talk about science news that we've seen, particularly over the last 24 hours, from Fermilab. So, Mitch, Mitch, thank you so much for joining us. We're hearing things about the standard model. We're hearing about possibly changes within the laws of physics. Can you tell us a little bit about what we've seen coming from Fermilab? Well, this is huge, not just Fermilab, but the Large Hadron Collider outside Geneva, Switzerland. We have a rough theory of subatomic particles. It's called the standard model. However, it's ugly as sin. It's one of the ugliest theories ever proposed with 36 quarks and antiquarks, 20 free parameters that you can adjust any way you want, three identical generations. It goes on and on and on. It can't be the final theory. So, any slight deviation from the standard model is going to generate huge headlines in the physics community. Now we have not one, but two, two sets of experiments that show that, well, the standard model is not perfect. And that signals there could be a higher theory, a higher theory beyond this ugly mess called the standard model. The standard model is sort of like taking a whale, an aardvark, and a platypus, scotch taping them together and calling this nature's finest evolutionary creation. The end product of millions of years of evolution. Nobody believes that the standard model is the final theory. It's a theory only a mother can love. Even its creators say that this cannot be the final theory. So we now have a clue. We're betting now, maybe it's supersymmetry, maybe string theory. All sorts of bets are now being placed on the table as to what is causing this anomaly in Chicago and outside Geneva, Switzerland. This is big news in physics. It's interesting when you talk about the ugliness of the standard model, because you also in, in the God Equation, you quote G.H. Hardy about saying, basically, there's no room for ugly mathematics. Is that one of the things that has driven you? And do you think it drives physics that sometimes you look at a theory and you can say, no, 
Ultimately, underneath this, there has to be something more harmonious. There has to be something with greater order and beauty behind this chaos. Well, you know, after World War II, we began to split protons apart. And we found not one particle, not two, but hundreds, hundreds of subatomic particles, a zoo of particles coming out when we shattered a proton. And then G. Robert Oppenheimer, father of the atomic bomb, made the public statement, quote, the Nobel Prize in physics should go to the physicist who does not discover a new particle this year. We were drowning in subatomic particles. And so the standard model, nobody likes it, but hey, it works. You can't doubt the fact for 50 years, it's fit all the data. But we know it's like the tail of a lion. Einstein once said that if you see the tail of a lion, you can assume that there's a lion at the other end. And that's why we're taking bets now. We're taking bets as to what could be the theory beyond the standard model. Is it a grand unified theory, a supersymmetric theory, a string theory? This is exciting because the standard model has held sway for 50 years. I was a grad student back then when the standard model was created. It's been boring. It's been so boring, stuck with this ugly theory for 50 years. And now we see the light at the end of the tunnel. A deviation in two laboratories, two sets of experiments, pointing out the fact that as we suspected, there's a higher theory out there. That is so exciting. Let's get a couple of things from the book sorted, first of all. And one of them is the theory of everything. So when people hear that term theory of everything, and we hear it more and more, can you explain what has been that problem in physics? Well, all of biology can be explained in the language of chemistry. All of chemistry can be explained in the language of physics. All of physics can be explained in the language of two theories. One, relativity, the theory of the very big, big bangs and black holes, and the theory of the very small, the quantum theory, which gives us transistors, lasers, the internet, all the modern wonders in our living room. The problem is these two theories don't like each other. They hate each other. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a god with a left hand and a right hand that don't talk to each other? That's incredible. That's what a theory of everything will do. Unify the theory of the big with the theory of the small. That is a quantum theory of gravity. That's the holy grail. That is what Einstein and others tried to find for the last 30 years of his life. He struggled with it. And we think that there is, quote, a God equation that will allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. So that's the holy grail, an equation no more than one inch long, perhaps, to read the mind of God. Think of E equals MC squared. That is one of the greatest equations of all time. It is half an inch long, but it unifies M, the matter of the sun, with E, the energy output of sunlight. A simple equation unifies matter and energy. Now we want a similar equation that unifies everything, all of biology, all of chemistry, all of physics into an equation one inch long. That's the holy grail. How far back do we have to go? Because it appears that we are able to observe the universe and kind of find ways to get away with not being worried about the clash between these two laws, these two principles. But at what point does it become an insurmountable issue? 
Well, you talked about going into the past, right? Uh, 2,000 years ago, the Greeks asked the question, what is the world made of anyway? There's got to be a theme, a paradigm, a principle that unifies the entire universe. Democritus thought it was atoms. A means cannot, tum means cut, atom means that which cannot be cut. But Pythagoras of the Pythagorean theorem said, no, 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 no. Atoms cannot explain the diversity, the richness, the variety of matter in the universe. The only thing capable of explaining the diversity of everything is music. Music, he said. He saw a lyre string. And when you pluck a lyre string, the longer the string, the lower the note. And he said, aha, mathematics. The mathematics of resonances, notes, will give you a theory of everything. Well, today we have something called string theory. And if you had a super microscope, you could see that an electron is not a dot at all. An electron is really a rubber band. You twang the rubber band and it vibrates in a different way and you call it a neutrino. You twang it again and it becomes a quark. You twang it any number of times and it becomes any number of the hundreds of subatomic particles. So each subatomic particle is a musical note. Physics is the harmonies that you can write on these musical notes. Chemistry is the melodies you can play on these interacting strings. The universe is a symphony of vibrating strings. And the mind of God, the mind of God that Einstein spent 30 years of his life chasing after, the mind of God is cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. That is the mind of God. God, of course, you know, sometimes, as, as we, I know people who with the Higgs boson wished it hadn't been called the God particle, and looking back, they felt that was, and, and obviously, as you said, we hear about the mind of God. God doesn't play dice. There was something I wanted, Frank Wilczek in his recent book, he gave it what he thinks God is to the physicist. He says, in studying how the world works, we are studying how God works, and thereby learning what God is. In that spirit, we can interpret the search for knowledge as a form of worship, and our discoveries as a revelation. How do you feel about that summary? Well, I feel the same existential shock, realizing that as a child, there could be a cosmic order to the entire universe. You know, when I was eight years old, everything started for me. When I was eight years old, my life changed. A great scientist had just died, and the newspapers all carried a picture of his desk. That's all. Just a picture of his desk with an unfinished manuscript on top. And the caption, I'll never forget it. The caption said, this is the unfinished work of the greatest scientist of our time. And I said to myself, wow, I had this existential shock, this epiphany. I said, what could be so hard? It's a homework problem, right? You could talk to his mother. What could be so hard that the greatest scientist of our time couldn't finish it? Well, I went to the library. I found out that this man was called Albert Einstein, and he was searching for an equation like E equals MC squared, but it would unify the universe. And I said to myself, wow, that's for me. That's what I want to work on for the rest of my life to complete this dream, this dream going back to the ancient Greeks, this dream going back to Pythagoras, who talked about music. Music being the unified theme of the universe.
Well, today we have a theory. It's just a theory, not proven yet. It's called string theory. And maybe, just maybe, string theory is what's driving these experiments in Chicago and Geneva, Switzerland, indicating a theory beyond the standard model. You see, what is the standard model? It's the lowest octave. It's the lowest octave of the string, which also contains Einstein's theory. If Einstein had never been born, we would have, would have discovered all of relativity as the lowest octave of a vibrating string. And there are higher octaves. Maybe that's what we're picking up in Chicago and Geneva, Switzerland. The next octave up. That's what's driving all, all this excitement. The fact that now we have a clue, a clue that goes beyond the standard model, a clue that says, aha, this could be the beginning of a theory of everything that's measurable in the laboratory right before our eyes. We could be witnessing history in the making. Do you ever find, if you think back to that eight-year-old boy who saw that obituary, saw that picture to the desk, is there ever a frustration? Because I always get a feeling with you that there's a tremendous amount of optimism, which is that we have sometimes wonderful theories, but we haven't got the technology that's caught up yet. So there's, you know, and that would have probably, you know, a great issue for Einstein and other scientists of that time, which is on the blackboard, things may stand. And at times they may well even go, well, the equations work out, but they're not testable as yet. Does that disparity sometimes between the philosophy of an idea and actually its ability to test that idea, do you ever find that frustrating? It's frustrating, but, you know, back in the year 1666, there was another theory of almost everything. There was a pandemic that hit London. One quarter of the population died in the Great Plague of 1666. There was a young 23-year-old man at Cambridge University. Cambridge was shut down. He went home. And walking on his estate, he saw an apple fall. And then he asked the key question, the question of the ages. If an apple falls, does the moon also fall? And then he realized, yes, the moon also falls. And then he started to write down equations that would govern the falling moon. And then he was so frustrated. The mathematics of 1666 did not allow him to calculate the trajectory of a falling moon. So what did he do? He created his own mathematics. It's called calculus, which today is called Math 1 when you go to college. And that man, of course, was Isaac Newton, the man who created a theory of almost everything. He must have been so frustrated that the mathematics of his time would not allow him to unify the laws of the heaven with the laws of the earth. Well, we physicists working on string theory feel the same way. The mathematics we have is not powerful enough to solve the theory. So what do we do? We create our own mathematics. So in other words, we have become mathematicians trying to tease apart a theory which is smarter than we are. You see, we discovered this theory by accident. We were not supposed to see this theory, perhaps for another 100 years. It is so bizarre, so advanced, that even mathematicians are dying to learn this theory. You know the Fields Medal, the Nobel Prize of Mathematics? If you want to get the next uh, Fields Medal, you pretty much have to learn string theory, because that's where new mathematics is being created in string theory. But again, the frustration, of course, is the same thing that we felt in 1666. Prove it. Prove that your theory works. Well, not only do we have this anomaly in Geneva and also Chicago now, 
We also have dark matter and dark energy, a new form of matter beyond atoms. You know, every textbook for children says that the world is made mainly of atoms, right? Wrong. The world is not mainly made of atoms. It's mainly made out of something that's invisible. It has gravity, but it's invisible. If I had dark matter in my hand, it would filter right through my fingertips, go right through the concrete under my floor, go right through Manhattan all the way to China, reverse direction in China, and come back to New York City. That's dark matter. We think dark matter is the next octave of the string. And one of these days, some physicists will say, we have captured dark matter in our spark chamber. That could prove the theory by showing that something beyond the standard model represents the next octave of the string. So you see, there are a number of experiments that we can do to prove the correctness of the theory. The only people who don't know that are the, the critics. They haven't read the literature on string theory. There are many experiments that we can create to test string theory. I wanted to ask you because, again, going back to your, your childhood and just before we started uh, this, before we turned the cameras on, talking a little bit about during your career how much the universe has changed, that what the universe was and the universe that you were taught at university and the things that you were told were of no interest. I think it's quite an interesting thing just to give the people watching some kind of sense of this different understanding of what the universe is made of and its potential. When I was a grad student learning particle physics for the first time in the 1970s, so many years ago, it was a very quaint world. Black holes were considered science fiction. If you wanted to work on black holes, you were pretty much ostracized, and people would say, what are, you, what are you doing? This is not Flash Gordon. This is not Star Trek. But hey, you know, that's a whole new field now, pioneered by Stephen Hawking. And then trying to work on a theory of everything, people's eyes would glaze over. Their eyeballs would look up in the heavens, they would shake their heads, and they would repeat what Wolfgang Pauli said, Nobel laureate. Wolfgang Pauli once said, what God has torn asunder after the Big Bang, let no man put together. In other words, how dare you? How dare you reverse God's will? That God shattered the laws of physics back at the instant of the Big Bang. That's why we have so many fragments of the Big Bang everywhere. Four fundamental forces, quarks, leptons everywhere. You dare to reverse that process to become like God? Well, that's the way it was when I was a grad student. And then along comes black holes, string theory, Stephen Hawking comes along and revolutionizes the whole field. And so we realize that sometimes things that are considered science fiction become the cutting edge of physics research. This is amazing. The fact that what was considered preposterous when I was a grad student is now considered mainstream physics. Because you mentioned Wolfgang Pauli, I should mention that there's a great story in, in your book where you talk about him giving a lecture, in which afterwards Niels Bohr came up to him and said, we think your theory is crazy, but is it crazy enough? 
Now, that's such an interesting thing in terms of the levels of crazy required. Crazy within the limits, then, of the testability of the equations of all this. I mean, how much do you feel? Because I think for a lot of people, when they first, when they first hear about ideas of something basically coming from nothing, when they first hear about the fact that even vacuums, the activity of what might happen in a vacuum, when they hear all of the different ideas that are thrown up by quantum mechanics and ideas of what happens in a black hole and just outside a black hole, it's st- and it sounds absurd. It sounds too crazy. Well, let me tell you how crazy string theory is. String theory is defined in 11-dimensional hyperspace, a dimension beyond everything we can conceive of. Now, let me explain. Children ask the question when they go to the science museum, mommy, daddy, they say, if the universe is expanding, what is it expanding into? If the universe is everything, then how can everything expand into anything at all? That's crazy. Well, string theory says, well, Einstein said that the universe is a bubble. We live on the skin of the bubble and the bubble's expanding. But string theory says there are other bubbles out there. This is mind-blowing, other bubbles. And sometimes these bubbles bump into each other, and that's the Big Bang. The Big Bang is the collision of bubbles or the fissioning of bubbles because we live in a multiverse, a multiverse of universes. Big Bangs are happening all the time. Even as we spoke at the beginning, universes have been created. Parallel universes floating in a larger universe. Now. When I was a child, I realized that my parents were Buddhists. And in Buddhism, there is nirvana. No beginning, no end of time, just nirvana. But as a child, they put me in a Presbyterian church. I learned all about Genesis. I learned all about how God created the universe. So I had two contradictory ideas in my head. Either the universe had a beginning or it didn't. There's no two ways about it. Wrong. Now we realize you can put these two theories together. You see, our universe had a beginning. There was a Big Bang. But it floats in a much larger arena. It's a bubble in a bubble bath. And sometimes they bump into other bubbles and create Big Bangs. And what is this larger arena? Nirvana. The Nirvana of hyperspace. Now Stephen Hawking called this the space-time foam that on a small scale, you have tiny universes being created. He called it the space-time foam, otherwise known as a bubble bath. And then you're going to ask me the next question. I always get this question. If there are such parallel universes, then is Elvis Presley still alive in one of these parallel universes? Well, yeah. You can write down the equations to create a universe where Elvis Presley is still belting out hits, but in another universe? This is how crazy this theory is. The only thing going for it, like inflation theory, is that it fits the data. Inflation theory, which postulates a multiverse of universes, is consistent with all the data. Now, you talk to a kid, and they say, I know all about that. I I, I watch comics. I mean, I see the movies. And in the latest Avengers, the latest Avenger movies, guess what? The whole plot takes place in the multiverse which is what I do for a living. I work on string theory, and in string theory is defined in the multiverse. So even children have caught up with us. 
But this is see what 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 in, in, intrigues me as well is what you see because talking to different physicists, some physicists when I talk to them say they they see equations when they talk about eleven dimensions, and others it seems and and in the book you mentioned Richard Feynman a few times, and some people say he had synesthesia and that that was one of the things which seemed that he could make these incredible leaps. Almost a leap with where he had to do the working out afterwards, get to the answer, and then go. Now I'll find out how how I. And so when you're when you're thinking about those ideas, when you're thinking of string theory, when you think about parallel universes, what are you seeing in your mind at that point? Well, you know, evolution has given us a brain by which we can visualize three dimensional tigers and three dimensional bears, and we can avoid them. However. Our brain does not understand five-dimensional bears or six-dimensional tigers because they don't threaten us. No six-dimensional tiger has ever jumped on me. So evolution did not give me the ability to visualize these higher dimensions. So that's a problem. But artists, artists have been fascinated by the fact that three is not a special number. Three dimensions is not special. Salvador Dali was fascinated by the fourth spatial dimension. He even drew Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ crucified in the fourth dimension. Go, go to Google and look up the painting, very famous painting, Hypercubicus Crucifixion, Jesus Christ crucified in the fourth dimension. And then when Salvador Dali had melted clocks, that was his trademark, right? Melted clocks, what was he doing? He was trying to represent the fourth dimension of time on a two-dimensional canvas. Now, how do I know that? Because he would spend time at Brown University talking to the mathematicians there. And the mathematicians say, yes, they entertained Salvador Dali on a number of occasions, stayed over at their house, in fact, and he pumped them for all the information. How do you visualize a higher dimensional being, a higher dimensional world on a two-dimensional canvas? The answer, surrealism. Now, maybe you saw the movie Interstellar starring Matthew McConaughey. That was a big budget Hollywood movie. At the end of the movie, Matthew McConaughey is thrown into a time machine. And where is he flown into? The fourth dimension. He's thrown into a tesseract. That's the final scene of the movie that many people are puzzled about. Why is Matthew McConaughey floating in a cube? He's actually floating in a four-dimensional cube because string theory is defined not just in four dimensions, but in 10 and 11 dimensional hyperspace. So you see, even the comic books are beginning to catch up to theoretical physics. I mean, th this seems a very important thing as well, which is, uh, it was, I, I remember talking to, to Sean Carroll, I think the first time I met him, and he'd been working in Hollywood on the film Thor, and his job had been uh, to make sure that the gods from Asgard, that the wormhole they used was as accurate as possible, which I loved, the fact that you're dealing both with fictional gods, Norse gods, but you still want the wormhole to be as accurate as current understanding allows. Now, that seems to me to give, and, and also with the work of Christopher Nolan, this tremendous hope that if we put these things in pop culture and people hear the words, they might just hear this term here and tesseract there, then it starts to become something that people aren't scared of. Because it does, I don't know how you feel, but it feels to me in the last 20 years, we're beginning to see a lowering of the fear of physics. Yes. In fact, it was uh, in the last century, in the 1800s, there was a Victorian mathematician at Oxford University by the name of Charles Dodgson. And he knew about these wormholes, 
Mathematicians call them multiply connected spaces. If I have two sheets of paper and I drill a hole between them, that's called the multiply connected space. Physicists call them wormholes. Mathematicians call them multiply connected space. So Charles Dodson, being a professor at, at Oxford, wanted to write a children's book about this. He couldn't do that under his own name, so he created a pseudonym, Lewis Carroll. And that book became Alice in Wonderland's Through the Looking Glass. The looking glass is the wormhole. This is the first representation of a wormhole in the English language. Alice in Wonderland has a wormhole. If I take a black hole, for example, and I spin it, spin it rapidly, it doesn't collapse to a dot at all. It collapses to a ring, a ring of neutrons. And if you fall through the ring, you go through the looking glass into a parallel universe. Of course, this is pure mathematics. No one has ever done this before. I don't advise you to do this. But there's a theory that says if you fall through the ring, you wind up in a white hole, a white hole at the other end of a black hole. And we've looked for them. This is serious physics. We have looked for white holes in the universe. So far, we have found nothing. But hey, there could be a white hole on the other end of a black hole. Stephen Hawking wrote many articles about the stability of these wormholes and said they could be used for time machines and for faster than light travel. He eventually concluded that a wormhole through space may be possible. Time he had doubts about. But yeah, a device that goes faster than the speed of light through a wormhole may be physically realizable, said the late Stephen Hawking. Now, I wanted to, uh, as I mentioned before, you mentioned Feynman a few times in this book. And uh, Richard Feynman, at one point you mentioned him when he said that he believes it's true to say that no one understands quantum mechanics. Now, that was 60 years ago. What has changed? In terms of our understanding this incredibly counter-instinctual world, how much has changed since 60 years ago when Richard Feynman said that? Well, there are two great interpretations of the cat problem. The cat, the Schrodinger cat, is one of the greatest paradoxes of all time. If you can resolve the cat problem, you will win the Nobel Prize in physics. So if any of your listeners ever figure out the cat problem, uh, I have a word of advice. Tell me first. Tell me first, we'll publish together, and we'll share the Nobel Prize. The cat problem is very simple. You put a cat in a box. Attached to the cat, there's a gun. A gun is connected to uranium. Uranium firing is a quantum event. When the uranium atom fires, it sets off the gun. The gun kills the cat. So is the cat dead or alive? Well, according to quantum mechanics, and this freaks people out, before you open the box, the cat is neither dead nor alive. This is how I teach quantum mechanics. I teach students. I go to the blackboard, and I write the wave function of a dead cat, and I add it, add it to the wave function of a live cat. At that point, the students all start to shake their heads, go like this, because how can you be dead and alive simultaneously? Now, how do you resolve whether or not the cat is dead or alive? You open the box. You have to make a measurement. But before you open the box, the cat is both dead and alive. Now, if you don't like this, get used to it. This is the universe. The universe doesn't care about your common sense. If your common sense feels violated by being dead and alive simultaneously, tough. 
That's just the way the universe is. Because that could be an electron, an electron spin up, added to electron spin down. And what does that give you? Modern electronics, the internet, laser beams, the wonders of quantum theory in your living room is all based on the idea that electrons can be here and there simultaneously. Electrons can be two places at the same time. Now that freaks people out. Einstein hated this idea. Einstein would invite guests to his house on, uh, in Princeton, and he would say, look at the moon. Does the moon exist when a mouse looks at the moon? I mean, it's crazy. It's bizarre. But like I said, get used to it. That's just the way the world is. Einstein was wrong in this one. The world really is quantum mechanical. And that's one way, one reason why it's so difficult to marry this bizarre theory called the quantum theory with relativity, which is based on smooth manifolds, smooth trampoline nets, curved space-time, beautiful, elegant, while matter is based on the cat problem. And again, if you can ever figure out the cat problem, <laughs> you'll be recognized as the next Einstein. So I, I'm a, one of the things that, because I, I, I love reading books like yours, and uh, and then sometimes I stop and I think, why am I doing this? Why do I need to know these things? And you must sometimes, as a, as a, as a, when, when you're writing the books, thinking, what do we need to know? Those of us who are non-scientists, who are drawn to this world, and then think, well, we're never really going to fully understand the equations. There's always going to perhaps be a limit of our comprehension. What is the drive to get people to become aware of some of these ideas, which can seem so arcane? Well, I think the universe is a chess game, and there's a destiny. We humans have a destiny, and after 2,000 years, we finally figure out how the pawns move, how the bishops move, and how the knights move. One day, we will have the God equation, and we'll understand how the entire game moves, and then we'll become grandmasters, grandmasters of the chess game that we call the universe. And then people come up to me and say, Professor, aren't you putting yourself out of a job? Aren't you going to be on the unemployment line begging, look, looking for pennies with your cup? Because you're going to be out of a job. Physics will end. This is the end of physics. No, I don't think so. It's the end of learning the rules of chess. That's all. We are not grandmasters yet. We don't know how to manipulate space and time. And, well, perhaps a civilization in outer space, millions of years ahead of us, aliens in outer space, perhaps they've already mastered this technology. Perhaps they are grandmasters. But we're still in the process of figuring out how pawns move, how the knights move, figuring out the rules of the game. So therefore, I think humanity has a destiny. That is our destiny, to figure out the rules of cosmic chess. And wonder, have you ever, are there any particular ideas of physics which you have found yourself resistant to when you first heard them? Are the ones that have stayed with you for longer that you've really had to battle to, to accept? Well, no. I mean, string theory has so many surprises that I have to keep an open mind. I like to think of it as walking through the desert of Egypt and you stumble upon a tiny pebble, a tiny pebble and you brush away the sand, and you find that it's actually the tip of a pyramid. And over the decades, you excavate the pyramid, and you find strange hieroglyphics, 
strange animals, strange drawings on the side of the pyramid. Finally, after many decades of hard work, you're finally at the ground floor. The ground floor of this enormous pyramid with mysterious hieroglyphics and etchings and diagrams. And we're about to open the door. That's where we are today. And I think this result, you know, outside Fermilab, outside Chicago, outside Geneva, Switzerland, could help us to open the door. Because this pyramid indicates that it's smarter than we are. You know, we were not supposed to see this theory. This theory was discovered by accident. Accident. We were not supposed to see this theory for perhaps another 100 years. But here we are, witnessing the birth of a crazy theory. Who, who would have thought? String theory vibrating in 11-dimensional hyperspace? I mean, who would have thought that something so bizarre, so crazy, may be the secret to why this pyramid actually works? But of course, we have to test it. And that's why this new result out of the Large Hadron Collider is so interesting. Is this the first testable prediction of the theory? Well, stay tuned and we'll see. One of the things that I often wonder is some people do see the how and the why questions as being entirely separate. And there are those who, who see science may well help us, our physical being, but in terms of our, uh, I mean, Wittgenstein talked about the idea that we might in the end understand all the secrets of the universe, but all of the problems of living remain and aren't, are untouched by understanding the science. How do you feel about that? Well, I like to quote Galileo. Galileo once said centuries ago that the purpose of science is to determine how the heavens go. The purpose of religion is to determine how to go to heaven. So in other words, science is about natural law, about how the heavens go. But religion is about ethics, how to go to heaven, how to be a good person, how to treat your neighbors well, how to go to heaven. The problem occurs when people who are natural scientists begin to pontificate about ethics, or we have problems when ethicists in religion begin to pontificate about natural law. As long as we keep these two realms separate, they are complementary. I see no, no difference no contradiction between religion and science, as long as they keep their domains intact. And we don't confuse the mission of religion and science. I don't see any problem at all. Well, that brings us very neatly to our first audience question, which is from Ben. And uh, Ben would like to know, he says, you've described yourself as an agnostic. Have your studies ever seen you sway closer or further away from a God as a designer of everything? Well, I believe in the God of Einstein. Einstein did not believe in a personal God that answers prayers, that smites the Philistine, that walks on water, that does all these marvelous things, especially at Christmas time. I don't believe in a personal God. I believe in the God of Spinoza and Einstein, the God of order, simplicity, harmony, elegance. You know, the universe could have been ugly. The universe could have been random. The universe could have been chaotic. It could have been a mist of subatomic particles with no consciousness, no beings. It could have been that universe. But our universe is gorgeous. It's incredible. You realize that on one sheet of paper, on one sheet of paper, we can put the theory of almost everything. 
Einstein's equation, the standard model, as ugly as it is, can also fit on a sheet of paper. It didn't have to be that way. And yet here we are contemplating the fact that there could be a master equation, one inch long, that summarizes the standard model and the quantum theory. It didn't have to be that way. So Einstein thought of himself as a child opening the door to this huge library. This library containing all the secrets of the universe and all he could do as a mortal was open the first book, first page, first paragraph. That's where we are today. The mystery of the universe is before us. And that was his conception of how we begin to understand the theory of everything, the God equation, the equation that makes this library possible. I love it. There was a Carlos Frank, who's a cosmologist up in, in Durham and, and does believe in a religious God. And I have lovely conversations with him because I'm, I, I think it's not the same as a lot of other people's religious God. He says he sees God as starting the universe and then going on holiday. I said, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the other people in the churches aren't seeing God that's been on holiday for that length of time. But I, I rather like that idea. Uh, this is from Julie, who would like to know, how do you wear the moniker of celebrity physicist or public scientist? Is it a burden or a privilege? Would you rather be in the lab more often? Well, I'm a theoretical physicist and people ask me, what do you do for a hobby? Well, I like to do theoretical physics. It is my hobby but it's also my advocation. And so that's pretty much uh, what I do for a living. Now, I realize that if you are a public figure, there's a purpose behind that. And that is you want to educate the public to the possibilities of science, because where does wealth come from? All this wealth that we see around us. Some people say, politicians say, that wealth comes from taxes. But taxes simply rearrange wealth. You rob Peter to pay Paul. Uh, economists say that wealth comes from printing money. But that simply means that you have to pay interest on your great-great-grandchildren's investments. That doesn't mean that's a source of wealth. I say that we scientists have to tell the people that wealth comes from science and technology. And every time we physicists unravel a force, it changes human history. When Isaac Newton wrote down the laws of mechanics and gravity, he laid the groundwork for the Industrial Revolution, the greatest revolution in human history that lifted us from a poverty-stricken agrarian society into the machine age. And then when Maxwell and Faraday worked out electricity and magnetism, that unleashed the electric force, which gives us dynamos, dams, which gives us motors, which lights up our cities. When Einstein wrote down E equals MC squared, that helped to solve the mystery of the sun, the stars, the nuclear force. And now we're on the verge of a theory of everything. So every time we physicists unravel a force, we change human history. We physicists know this, but the public does not know this. And who pays our salary? Ultimately, the government and private industries pay our salaries, but they don't appreciate the fact that we are the generators of wealth in society, that we are the creators of all the abundance of wealth, computers, lasers, the internet, all of that came from the mind of a physicist. And unfortunately, we got lazy. 
In the 1990s, our machine, the Super Collider, was canceled. This multi-billion dollar machine was canceled and the Vatican of Physics went to Geneva, Switzerland, where we have the Large Hadron Collider. We got bored with raising money. We used to go to the Congress of the United States during the Cold War and say one word, one word to Congress, Russia. And then Congress will whip out the checkbook and say two words, how much? That's the way it was during the Cold War. You wanted a machine, how much? The Russians have a machine, we'll give it to you. <laughs> Those days are gone. We physicists now have to learn to sing for our supper. We have to learn how to engage the public because the taxpayers pay for our research. Let me give you another example. In the 1990s, there was this fierce debate about the super collider. In the last day of hearings, they were going to cancel the super collider, this beautiful machine of science. One congressman asked the physicist, and I quote, will we find God with your machine? If so, I will vote for it. Well, the physicist didn't know what to say. So he said, we will find the Higgs boson. Well, you could hear the jaws hit the floor in the United States Congress. $10 billion for another goddamn subatomic particle. The vote was taken, our machine was canceled, and American physics, particle physics, was set back two generations. That's how devastating that was. Since then, we physicists have to go through our mind over and over again. How should we have answered that question? The next time someone says, will we find God with your machine? I would have answered it this way. I would have said, God, by whatever signs or symbols you ascribe to the deity, this machine, the super collider, will take us as close as humanly possible to his greatest creation, Genesis. This is a Genesis machine. It'll recreate some of the early conditions of the greatest event in the history of God's universe, its birth. Instead, we said Higgs boson, and our machine was canceled, and we were set back two generations of physicists. What's the moral here? The moral here is that we physicists have to learn to sing for our supper. Stephen Hawking showed how to do it. Here was this top physicist at the cutting edge talking to children. Yes, that is the way of the future. We have to learn to sing for our supper. Now, I wanted to go back just when you were mentioned there about the incredible innovations that have come from science. But it reminded me also of that. I can't remember who said it. The person who said the future is already here, but it's not evenly distributed. And that seems to be another issue is that we've had these incredible insights, incredible possibilities of technology. And yet for a lot of people, I mean, for instance, in both the UK and the US, particularly countries with a huge disparity and increasing disparity between the richest and the poorest. And there is a sense that the future is here, but not everyone has access to it. Not everyone has access in, in the US. West, for instance, to some of the remarkable achievements of healthcare. Do we somewhere along the line need to attach more philosophy, more ethics to these incredible um, advances that we have? Well, yes, but there's also a flip side to the whole question. When technologies are first mass produced, they are expensive. 
because you have to pay off the investors who invested in the technology, you have to encourage, encourage inventors to invent these things by rewarding them. And so there is a price to pay for inventions when they're first marketed. Then what happens is mass production sets in. Then we get the fact that products can be reduced in price because of automation. Look at the Human Genome Project. It cost three billion US dollars to sequence the first human being. Three billion dollars. People said that genomics is only for the rich. In fact, only for billionaires. Well, guess what happened? For a hundred bucks now, for a hundred bucks, you can get most of your genes sequenced just by mailing in your spit. Who would have thought? What happened? Automation, mass production, competition drove down the cost. You know, back in the 1920s, I mean, back 20 years ago, when the internet was first coming out in a big way, people said the internet is for the rich. They called it the digital divide. Only rich people will have laptops. Only rich people will be online. Well, guess what happened? Children are online. If you're a kid and you're not online, you don't exist. You don't have a handle. You don't even exist anymore. In fact, at that point, I still remember that laptops were produced for school children, but these laptops would just sit in the schoolyard unused. Why? Because the teacher didn't know how to use the laptop and the kids were already online. Now, even poor countries are getting access to this by the millions. In fact, you know that if you are poverty stricken in a poor country, you would rather have a cell phone than a bathtub. It's incredible. I saw the numbers. Poor people would rather have a cell phone than a bathtub because, well, you can always, you know, use your neighbor's bathtub, but a cell phone, you need it because for life, for borrowing things, for making friends, for expanding your, your pool of acquaintances, you need a cell phone. It's a gold mine, that cell phone. So what we have here is the fact that automation, demand, artificial intelligence, mass production is driving down the cost of these technologies to the point where for a hundred bucks, you can get a technology that once cost $3 billion. So there's hope. Let's move on to now the next question. When you say where there's hope, we might need this because the next question is about consciousness. So either it's going to be over in 12 seconds or this is going to take us all the way to the end of the show. Uh, Jeffrey would like to know, where does consciousness belong in the theory of everything? Well, just because you learn the rules of chess does not mean that you are a grandmaster. There's something called emergent phenomenon. In other words, if I get a bunch of molecules and I put them together, what do you get? Well, you get a gas, for example. But out of this gas, you can get hurricanes. You can get the weather, snowstorms, all sorts of anomalies that you couldn't necessarily predict ahead of time. And consciousness might be one of them. If I give you 100 billion neurons, 100 billion neurons, and just wire them up, you will find all sorts of bizarre phenomenon emerging for free. That These are called emergent phenomena because of something called chaos theory. So this theory, the theory of everything, will give you the ground rules. It'll give you the rules of chess, but it will not give you all the bizarre twists and turns of emergent phenomena, especially when you put a hundred billion neurons together in your head, 
all sorts of interesting phenomena come out, including consciousness. Brilliant. We'll move on now straight to an infinite number of universes. That's what Jonathan would like to know. Are there an infinite number of universes? Well, the short answer is we don't know. But there is an interpretation of ordinary quantum mechanics that says that we coexist with an infinite number of universes. Now, I once talked to Steve Weinberg, Nobel laureate, and he gave this example. Think of a radio. Your radio is tuned to one frequency. You can only hear one frequency. But surrounding your living room, there are hundreds, hundreds of frequencies that you cannot hear because you're not tuned into them. You don't vibrate at the same frequency. You only hit one frequency in your living room. Now these vibrations, replace them with matter vibrations of quantum mechanics. The Schrodinger equation gives you all sorts of vibrations, electrons, protons, all vibrations. But you are only tuned to one frequency. And that frequency we call reality. But in your living room, you coexist with all the other frequencies. The frequencies of aliens, the frequencies of dinosaurs, the frequencies of pirates, but you can't see the dinosaurs. They're there, but you can't see them. And why not? Because you're no longer vibrating in unison with them. And you can even calculate, in fact, this is a problem that we give our students, calculate the probability that you'll wind up on Mars tomorrow. Because on Mars, you vibrate at a different frequency. It turns out, and you can do the math, you would have to wait longer than the lifetime of the universe for you to wake up on Mars tomorrow. But it's possible. It's a calculable number. So that's how strange quantum mechanics is. Quantum mechanics says that we coexist with an infinite number of universes. And yes, Elvis Presley is alive in one of them. This is crazy. But like I said, get used to it. This is just the way it is, folks. Michelle, I would like to know, have you referred to the theory coming? Oh, sorry, you have referred to the theory coming before the proof. Do you believe that non-physicists can have great theories? Is physics innate in our souls? Do we have the theories in all of us already? Well, I like to think of it as trying to learn, let's say, French. That it's possible to learn about French civilization, about the great works of art of the French civilization. But if you want to understand the thinking process, then of course you have to learn how to conjugate verbs. You have to have a vocabulary. And the same thing with nature. If you want to appreciate the glories of nature, the sophistication, the beauty of nature, that's for everyone. However, if you want to understand how nature works, the mechanics of evolution, the mechanics of, of, let's say, volcanoes and earthquakes and things like that, you have to pay your dues. You have to learn mathematics. Mathematics is the language of nature. Now, ultimately, we think that all these equations of mathematics come from one equation, the God equation. And of course, that's a topic of my latest book. But if you want to appreciate the consequences of the God equation, that's for everyone. The universe is there for everyone to appreciate. But let's face it, if you want to be a player in the game, if you want to create your own theory, then you have to know the mathematics. That is the language of nature, just like French is the language of French civilization. Sorry about that. Uh, Jim would like to know, he says, how much do string theorists get on with supersymmetrists in real life conferences, etc.? Is it difficult? Well, first of all, what is beauty? 
Beauty to an artist is something that is aesthetically pleasing. To a physicist, beauty is symmetry. And what is symmetry? Think of a snowflake. If you were to rotate a snowflake, it remains the same. Take a look at a sphere. If you rotate a sphere, it rotates into itself. That we call beautiful. An equation is beautiful when we rotate particles into other particles, and the theory remains the same. Now, the biggest symmetry in physics is called supersymmetry. It's a symmetry of strings. Think of all the vibrations of the string. You rotate them in the equation, and the string equations remain the same. This is the biggest symmetry known to science, and it is the symmetry of strings. And so we think that at the beginning of time, the universe was like a crystal, perfectly symmetrical. Everything rotated, rotated into itself, and that was the crystal at the beginning of the time. What was the symmetry of this crystal? Supersymmetry. But there was a crack. There was an imperfection in that crystal, and for reasons we don't understand, it shattered. It shattered, giving you pieces everywhere, and that's called the Big Bang. And what do we do as scientists? We're trying to put those pieces back together again, one by one. We're trying to put those pieces back together again. I'd like to think of it as flatlanders, two-dimensional people living on a tabletop, cookie people living on a tabletop. There's a crystal that shatters all the components down on flatland. And over 2,000 years, flatland people assemble two big chunks of crystal. One chunk is called relativity. The other chunk is called the quantum theory, and they don't merge together. So one day, one flatlander has an outrageous idea, preposterous. People laughed at it. The idea is to lift one crystal in the third dimension, flip it in the third dimension, and bring these two pieces together. People said, ha! This is crazy. There's no third dimension. There's only two dimensions. Two dimensions of Flatlander. But on a computer, you can show that these two pieces, relativity and the quantum theory, fit perfectly if you lift, lift one of these pieces into hyperspace, the third dimension, flip it in hyperspace, and bring it together. Well, we think that crystal is string theory. The symmetry is called supersymmetry. And we physicists are trying to live not a three-dimensional crystal, but an 11-dimensional crystal to give you a theory of everything. Sophia would like to ask, she says, to the extent that philosophy is father of science and may still inform it, are physicists trained in philosophy as part of the curriculum? Well, the short answer is no. When I was at Harvard, I took a course in philosophy just to find out what all the excitement was about. And quite frankly, I was a little bit disappointed uh, I didn't see anything new coming out of philosophy. It's just like a lot of pretty words. However, Steve Weinberg, again, winner of the Nobel Prize, wrote a book, and he had a chapter, a chapter called Against Philosophy. In other words, he said philosophy is useless. And he listed all the reasons why philosophy was not a guide. And in fact, I sometimes quote Einstein. And Einstein said that when he was young, Philosophy is like honey. It was like honey, he said. At first, it's sweet, tantalizing, and then you realize it's all fluff. There's nothing there. Well, the irony is that chapter against philosophy 
a whole chapter, Ranting and Raving Against Philosophy, is one of the most philosophical chapters I have ever read. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous going through all the ins and outs of philosophy, all the arguments showing how they're wrong, so on and so forth. But the whole chapter against philosophy is one of the most philosophical chapters that I have ever read. In other words, as Einstein once said, science without religion is lame, but religion without science is blind. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Micho. Uh, the God Equation is out now. I should say this is not actually, this is the proof copy cover. Look up the God Equation. Uh, it deals with a lot of things that we haven't mentioned tonight. We've already really got to the beginning of those things. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much to the How To Academy. And thank you very much, uh, Micho. Hope to see you all again soon. My pleasure. Great honor. This week's show starred Michio Kaku and was presented by Robin Ince. The producers were me, Vas Christodoulou, and Luke Naylor Perro. We have a lot more science in our archive, including last week's show with material scientist Anna Proshysky and interviews with Brian Green, Neil deGrasse Tyson and many more, all available for free wherever you're listening to this. As ever, please do like, share and follow us and visit us at howtoacademy.com to see our summer programme. Thanks for listening. <laughs>